welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. The podcast cover story just released a series called Power Trip, which is a deeply researched expose of the dark side of the psychedelic treatment world. The series highlights the stories of a few women, including the co-host, who were sexually assaulted in psychedelic treatment spaces, mostly in the underground, but also one woman who was abused by her therapist both during and after her participation in the MAPS PTSD study. I listened to the whole series and found myself initially very grateful for the producer's hard work and courageous journalism, and I was horrified, but not surprised, by the past and ongoing sexual boundary violations that we see in the psychedelic space. But then, later in the series, cover story shifted to a double-barrel assault on MAPS as an organization in its Phase 3 PTSD study. Cover story questioned the integrity and competence of the people working in the study, and basically, they tried to paint the study as some kind of amoral juggernaut, which, in its desperate need to bring MDMA to full medicalization, is and was willing and able to squash any vulnerable participants or opposition in its way. I couldn't disagree more. And I feel the imperative to share a different view. I was a study physician and therapist in the phase three MDMA trial. And my experience with participants, with my colleagues, both at my study site and other sites, and with many MAP staff at all levels of the organization was totally unrecognizable and covers stories sensationalized account. First of all, let me clarify, I'm no longer working in the MAP study. I've been a member of MAPS for over 25 years, and I continue to support the work. But I speak for myself here, not for MAPS. Listening to Cover's story, one gets the impression that the study monitoring and safety protocols are and were minimal to non-existent. This is absurd. Ironically, I left the MAPS study specifically because I found the medical and safety documentation requirements to be so overwhelming. We spent countless hours perusing past medical records, making detailed lists of every current and past prescribed medication and supplement and recreational drug used. We scrutinized medical problem lists and got collateral from outside physicians and therapists. We talked to family members when appropriate. We exhaustively reviewed potential risks and benefits with all our participants. The criteria for study entrance are so stringent that at my clinical site, Over 90% of candidates were rejected. And finally, most relevant to the story you're going to hear today, we returned our study participants, whenever possible, to their prior trauma therapists once the study was completed. The MAPS study was the most scrutinized and tightly monitored project I've been a part of by far in my whole life. What makes the news is almost always the extreme version but most of reality lies somewhere in the murky middle. Cover Story told a few stories of horror, and I'm back from the abyss in the MDMA Inner Healer episode in season one. I shared an astounding home run cure story with MDMA. So yes, at least with respect to MDMA, I too have been guilty of highlighting an extreme. Ironically and conveniently, as I was working my way through Cover Story, I was beginning to edit a different kind of MDMA healing story with a woman named Hope, who was in the MAPS study, but wasn't healed, and in some ways got worse after leaving the study. I wasn't Hope's therapist, but I knew about her and her story, and I'd been thinking that it was time to tell the much more common story of progress without cure, of two steps forward, one step back, not of the headline-grabbing extremes of total cure or horrific assault. I called Hope and asked her to listen to cover story, that I thought she might have a lot to say about it. And this led to Hope's story evolving into a direct response to some of the allegations and hyperbole in relation to the MDMA study. This episode has two parts. In the first 20 minutes, Hope remembers some crux moments of her trauma history, growing up amidst parental abuse, emotional neglect, and the horrors of war, then transitioning to her memories of being in the MDMA study. Thereafter, the episode shifts to a conversation where Hope and I look at what happened to her after the study, what got better, what didn't, and Hope's reactions to the stories presented in Cover Story's Power Trip. 
So I think my earliest memory, and I don't know how old I was, I have no idea. I know I was very young because it was in our first house and I was sitting on the couch in my nightgown. I, I don't know what I was, I was playing. I was, I don't know what I was doing. And my mom walked by and she said, put your legs together. And at the time I had no understanding. I didn't see myself as any different. I saw myself, you know, the same as my two brothers. I think that was the first time in my life that I felt actual shame. And I didn't even understand why. All I knew was that I was doing something very, very wrong and I needed to fix it. That was, I think, the moment that changed the way that I saw myself as a person. A big moment in my life happened when this was still in our first apartment. We were on the eighth floor. We lived in the city, the capital city, and there'd always been air raids. This time was different because this time the planes were dropping bombs that could essentially destroy an entire building. So there was no point in going down to the bomb shelter because if the building collapsed, we would be trapped. So I remember my mother standing in the living room. She was hysterical and she was screaming at all of us to come huddle. Her words were, you all need to come here and stand here right now because it's better for us if we all die together and not one of us just survive with the whole family wiped out. I remember becoming so angry. I wanted to scream and rage and say that I didn't care if they all died, that I wanted to live and that I didn't want to go. And I remember keeping my mouth shut because words were not helpful in my family. And I went there and I stood with them. And all I remember feeling is anger and hatred for my family. My son was born probably a year after I was married. Uh, it was a very difficult pregnancy, and I didn't think that, you know, he was going to make it, but he did. He was born, and my mother came, and it must have been maybe when he was a week and a half or two weeks old. She was sitting with him in the living room. He was in her lap. She had the TV on. My mom always has the TV on, and she yells at me to come in. I walk into the living room, and she's like, look, look at what's happening. And it was this news footage of, you know, this outside of a school, school kids coming out, you know, parents standing outside, and I'm like, what is happening? It was when the Columbine shooting happened. I personally do not typically watch news. I don't listen to news or anything like that, but you know, that day the TV was on, and I stood there, and I watched. Somehow, I saw myself standing outside of that school, waiting for my son to walk out. And my son did not walk out. And I just, like all the hope that I had in my heart, just shattered. This was a school. These were little kids, and... I was just become a mother. And to see that in, you know, what was supposed to be the safest country in the world was shattering. My daughter was born around two and a half years later. 
I was pregnant. I was very, very pregnant. And at the time, my parents lived in Maryland, and my dad called me. My dad never, ever calls me. And he's like, something is happening. Turn on the TV. Something is happening. And I'm like, what is happening? Why do I need to turn on the TV? And he was like, he was very upset. My dad does not get upset. So I was alone at home with my son, and I turn on the TV, and I see an airplane slamming into a building. That was when I had my first panic attack, and I didn't know what it was. All I knew was that I could not breathe. I tried. I turned the TV off immediately, and I was like doubled over trying to just suck air in, and I could not breathe. My daughter was born very early the next morning. I think that was when my entire life just came crumbling down. There was absolutely nothing left, nothing. I thought I was safe here. I thought I was going to bring up my kids in a normal, happy, beautiful place. And the war came home to me. I think that's when, after September 11, I made it very clear that nobody was to turn on the TV in my house. No newspapers at the door. Um, I stayed home. I did not go out. I lived in my own bubble with my beautiful daughter who was like a ray of sunshine. She was the happiest little child. I mean, she just smiled all day, never cried. She was so happy. I just isolated myself in my house. I didn't see anyone. I didn't talk to anyone. I just wanted to pretend that nothing was happening. And it was like this little bubble, and nothing could touch it. I just stayed busy all day long. It was sort of like the task list that didn't end and I would check something off and I would add more and it literally just never ended and it was such an amazing way to just keep going. whatever reason, one day I was on the couch. I was so tired. I was exhausted. I could not get up and I thought I was sick. I'm like, I have the flu. I don't know what's happening. So I went in to see my family doctor and I just broke down, completely broke down, could not stop crying. And she's like, you know, what is happening? She'd known me for a long time. And I said, I don't know. I'm too scared to sleep. I can't sleep at night. I can't. I'm just scared all the time. And I have no energy. I can't move. And little by little, I told her just little tidbits of what had happened. And she was the one. She's like, oh, that sounds like PTSD. She's like, here, let's put you on these meds. And you need to find a therapist. And I did. I found a therapist, and I found another, and another, and another. And I didn't want to talk about. I didn't want to talk about anything. I talked about my life at home and my husband, and being unhappy. But you know, talking about what I had left behind was just inconceivable. It was just not. I had left it behind. There was no reason to ever bring it up. And so I didn't talk about any of that stuff. Years went by. I was on antidepressants for 12 years. And I'd seen several therapists during that time. And not a single one of them could help me. I don't know why. It just was never helpful. You know, we just talked about, you know, what was happening. We didn't talk about why I was feeling the way that I was. And I think eventually 
I just couldn't go on anymore. Um, I got to a point where my parents had moved here, and if I wasn't being at home with my husband and my kids, and I was teaching at university at the time, um, it was going to see my parents. They lived five minutes away, and then helping them with everything that they needed. And I kept thinking, you know, I kept thinking, one day somebody's going to say, you know, you've worked so hard, you've given us so much, you know, stop. You know, it's it's our turn to take care of you. I kept thinking somebody one day was going to say that to me. But nobody ever did, not even a single one. They just were so happy to just keep taking what I was giving. And I got to a point where I had nothing left, not for my kids, not for me. I got to a point where I was like in this dark, dark place and there were no doors and there were no windows and I was just trapped in this life that I despised. I remember thinking, I'm ready, I'm ready to be done. But I had the kids and that was not an option. And so instead I said, I'm done with my life. And I ended my marriage. It was not even an explanation. It was a, it's over, I can't be with you anymore. first treatment I was so scared so scared I wouldn't lie down on the couch I didn't want to put headphones on or the eye shades or anything I just sat on the couch um, and it was a male and female therapist this beautiful little office and there were like flowers and art on the walls and it was just this beautiful place and I remember taking that first dose and I was just sitting and nothing really felt different except from the court I was looking down on the floor and there was this carpet and I could just see from the corner of my eye like the pattern on the carpet was like shifting slightly there was music playing and I don't know how it happened I was sitting on that couch one second, and then the next second, I was a five-year-old child. And I just had no idea. I did not know. I was just, there was no thought. I was just sitting there, and all of a sudden, I was five. I was in a small five-year-old body, and everything was dark. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't hear anything. It was just pitch black. That's sort of how it started. And then the doctor came in and they asked if I wanted to take my second dose. And I was like crying and crying. It was just this grief. And I said yes. And I took the second dose. And that was when my life changed. The reason why it changed is because for the first time in my life, and at the time I was 44 or 45, I felt love in my body. Not like somebody saying, I love you, not, you know my kids holding my hand, I felt love inside of my body. Like how it would feel like to be loved by the people who brought you into the world, like actually be loved and cherished 
and protected. And it was such an incredible feeling. It was so beautiful. And I didn't want it to end, even though I was in this scary, terrifying place and I couldn't see. All I remember was, I'm loved and I'm safe and I can be what I need to be and nobody, nobody's going to look at me like I'm dirty or like I'm shameful or like I'm disgusting or ugly or stupid. I could be me and I would still be loved. I think that was the beginning for me because being loved at that point meant that I was worthy to be alive and that it was okay that I was still alive and that maybe I could actually have a life. I remember at one point I was so scared. I was so scared. And the male therapist asked, he's like, what are you afraid of? And I said, I'm scared to die in this darkness all alone. I'm so scared that I'm going to die by myself and nobody's even going to know that I'm gone. And he said, why don't you try, like try, just let yourself die and see what happens. And I was so tired of being scared. And I did. I let myself die. And I turned into this little spark of light. And there was this massive, like, ocean flowing like a river. It was made of billions and billions of just little sparks of light. And I remember that I joined them. And I was, like, flowing through the universe in this river of just love and safety and light. And it was so beautiful. And that was the second time that I knew that it didn't matter what happened. I knew that everything was going to be okay. second treatment my female therapist she was just this very steady very beautiful loving presence in the room I was talking about how it was so hard for me to be who I was because where I come from women are not exactly treasured or cherished in the same way and um, we were talking she sort of became like this mother figure during the treatment like this mother that I never had because she was just so caring and concerned there was something about her that just felt so beautiful and so safe and I remember her asking me some questions. And I was talking about how I saw myself as this really dark, really ugly, like dirty thing. And how I'd felt that way my whole life growing up. We were sort of trying to figure out, you know, who is this person? Who is this really, really dark person? 
And I started talking about my mother and how my mother was always this very, very strong, influential figure in my life. And how terrified I was of her my whole life. Even in my 40s, I used to be scared of her. How her eyes just seemed to follow me everywhere that I went. And they would always have this judgment, regardless of what I was doing. That it was being bad, and that I was dirty. And I was ugly. And she asked me a question. She's like, you know, what do you think, you know? Do you think your trauma is growing up in that war? Or do you think your trauma could be from something else? And that's when I made the realization that I was more afraid of my family than I was of anything else and mostly my mother. That set the stage for a lot of healing that needed to happen because I realized then that I think I would have been okay. I survived, you know, with all my limbs. I didn't die and I made it out and I was safe. But there was still this presence in my life that was terrifying and dark. And that was a turning point in sort of the direction that I knew I needed to go to keep healing. Did the third treatment and I felt solid in knowing, you know, okay, I'm dealing with my past, I'm dealing with my parents, I'm going to put some boundaries with my mother and I finally now, I finally now get to live my life for me. remember what you were hoping for or even expecting when you joined the study? I do because at the time I hadn't done any research or looked into the therapy so I had no idea what the therapy was like and what the outcome was going to be and what participants would go through in terms of the treatment um, and so on purpose, I did not want to know anything mm -hmm. because um, I honestly did not think I would get into the study. And so for me, it was a, I'll apply and most likely I won't get in. And I just didn't look at anything at all. Mm -hmm. So I had zero expectations. Yeah, that's interesting because my experience with, with participants at the study site and people who were trying to get in was that a lot of them came with had read a lot, had heard of the mm -hmm. study, knew about MDMA, and were hopeful that this was going to be their ticket, like the golden ticket. In fact, a couple of people even said, I hope I get the golden ticket, and that they were going to be healed, cured. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like that's not your, that's not how you came to the study. No, I did not want to know anything, also partially because I didn't want to have any like preconceived notions about what could happen and what you know, things could feel like. I wanted to get into it knowing nothing mm -hmm. and sort of let it happen. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just had no information at all. Yeah. I know this question may be difficult to answer because it was, you know, quite a ways back that you were screening into the study. But do you remember 
whether your therapists talked about potential risks or harms. And then in the informed consent document, I don't know if you remember that, but that was what you had to sign to say you understood the potential benefits and risks. I mean, do you remember hearing anything about that this, you know, that MDMA could cause harm or that the study could make you worse, that, that there could be bad outcomes? No, I don't remember anything like that. Um, I do remember signing a bunch of paperwork. I think I had heard that some people had dropped out of the study, but I don't remember much about the consent process. And at the time, honestly, I don't think I paid attention mm -hmm. because I was still in such a sort of numbed out place that I just did not pay attention to anything. Mm -hmm. I just got into it almost like with my eyes closed. Mm -hmm. As we heard at the beginning of this episode, you were telling your story in kind of a lyrical snapshot way. And I had asked you to kind of go back in the moment and talk about the different traumas and things you've been through and then, and through the study, you know, as if you were living it again. And the last bit of recording before you and I start talking was you saying, like, now I can live my life. Mm -hmm. And here we are, you know, again, a ways out, years out from you yeah. finishing that study. And I'm wondering, you know, did, did the study help? Like what got better? What didn't, um, did anything get worse? Cause I think you, you have an interesting perspective in that you, um, have done a lot of living since then and yeah. a lot of thinking, a lot yeah. of therapy and yeah. So what got better? I think the study, the actual treatment sessions, were the first time in my life that I felt physically loved. I did not know what that felt like. I had grown up sort of being told that people loved me and cared about me, but I never actually felt it. I didn't feel cherished or special or cared for, you know, in a certain way. It was, I remember it being the first time in my entire life where I felt like I was precious. Mm -hmm. That caused the biggest shift for me. Yeah. Was part of that sense of being precious, was that at all related to the, you know, the transference with the male and female therapists and... Um, no, and no, not so much, no. It was more the care that was put into the treatment and the way that I was being spoken to and the way that I was being listened to, that mm -hmm. was probably the biggest thing for me because I'd always felt unseen, unheard. And that was the first time in my life that I actually felt seen. And I remember my biggest fear being that, you know, when they actually saw the real me underneath, you know, what I portrayed, that they would be disgusted and sort of repulsed, and it was the complete opposite. Mm -hmm. And that's what was like the biggest revelation to me, that I actually was worthy of being loved. And so that was the beginning of the change for me, was knowing that I was worthy of having a decent life like everyone else. I mm -hmm. never felt that way before. Mm -hmm. Did that persist? It, it took a lot of work after that to feel that way uh, because I had to advocate for myself. You know, in the study, you receive it. You don't have to do anything. And then after the study, I had to ask for it and I had to sort of accept being on the receiving end of being cared for, which was very hard for me. Um, so it took a lot of work after that. Mm -hmm. But I never forgot how it felt. And I knew I wanted to replicate the feeling. Yeah. You had mentioned before we started recording that 
post-study, your CAP scores went way, way down. So the CAPS yeah. is the measure that MAPS uses mm-hmm. to study and evaluate PTSD severity and improvement. And uh, yours improved a great deal. Yes, I did not qualify as having P- PTSD post-study. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that was the the part that was maybe the hardest was going from that point and then getting out of the study and getting back into my life and then realizing that that wasn't permanent, that I wasn't going to be symptom-free forever mm-hmm. because, yeah, everything changed after that. Yeah, what changed? I mean, you talked about how in the study you felt love in your body for the first time. You felt precious and heard and validated for the first time. And your scores got better, and clearly some things got better, but some things did not get better. And I'm curious, what didn't get better, and did anything get worse, or something new re-emerge? What didn't get better was me not understanding that the way that I saw the world was the problem. And the study didn't fix that, you know, it made me feel a certain way, but it didn't say, okay, from now on, you know, once you leave, these are the things that you need to do to stay in this place. And so I didn't understand that me staying in the same patterns and not advocating for myself and not having any boundaries um, was a problem. Mm-hmm. I just did not know. And I learned that through years of therapy. But that, I think, was the hardest thing post-study was having to learn all of those things that I was never taught. And, you know, it's not automatic. It's not, you know, you go through the treatment and all of a sudden you know how you're supposed to live. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work that way. And so... That was the biggest challenge at that point was being willing to see my part in what was not working and then working very hard to change that. And that continues to be a hard process. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, that's not work that ever stops. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there any sense when the study ended uh, of being abandoned or kind of left out to dry? Or you know, I I know some people at the study site where I was were really scared when the study ended because the study mm-hmm. was a very powerful experience and yeah. very nurturing and um, supportive. And it's relatively relatively short. You know, after three and a half months, it's over, and mm-hmm. you. Um, move on to aftercare and the rest of your life. And what was that like for you to transition out back to your life? It was very difficult, mostly because I was still in my family situation. I was married to someone who was not treating me well. And so it was a huge challenge. However, I think in my case, my therapist's were willing to stay in touch with me via email. And so when something really big would happen, I would reach out and I would say, hey, this is what's going on. And I feel like I'm back where I started or I feel like my life is awful all over again. And they provided a lot of support over, I would say, almost close to two years post Mm -hmm. end of study which I know is probably not a common experience. So for me, I did have to do the hard work, but at least I had a sounding board. Mm -hmm. And I had somebody to say, hey, you know, this is what's going on. And then I would get a very considerate, thoughtful, thought-out reply of, you know, we remember you struggling with this during the study And we're here to support you. And of course, you know, just like in the study, they don't give you answers. They don't tell you what to do. 
you know, they trust you to know what's best. In that way, I think I was very lucky because I don't know that other therapists invested this amount of time in, you know, their participants. However, yeah, you know, you feel so special during the study and everybody's sort of rejoicing at your success. And then once that's over, you're sort of a little bit almost forgotten. And not because, you know, they don't care about you, but because things move on, things have to move on and keep moving forward with other participants. And so there was a part of it that was very, very difficult in that I almost was like given a set of tools and told, okay, it's your job to figure out how to use them. It's not going to be easy and it doesn't come with any instructions. So here you go and best of luck on your journey. And it wasn't, you know, in any way malicious or uncaring. It was just, you know, things moving forward. Yeah. My sense is a number of people come to the study, maybe a very large percentage of people come to the study having spent years and years in kind of a dissociative numbing freeze, you know, not, you know, for sure, having times of the, you know, the hot symptoms of PTSD, the sympathetic arousal and the panic, but a lot of time in shutdown, just numbed. And so, you know, I wonder if there's this dynamic that happens, not just with the study, but with psychedelic work in general, where you, two things going on at the same time. One is that you get kind of the dissociation cracked and you start to feel again. Like, as you said, mm-hmm. you felt loved, you felt special, you felt yeah. it in your body. But then when the, when the treatment ends, whether, you know, it's an ayahuasca retreat in Central America or the MDMA mm-hmm. study with MAPS, you no longer have that yet you you now have had your dissociation and numbness cracked open and you can feel so you can feel things that you weren't feeling before and you can feel this acute loss of what you had it's almost like if you had no taste buds or sense of smell through your life and then you did some scientific study where they restored smell and taste yeah and you got to eat all this amazing food and then you left the study and you still had your sense of smell and taste, but you were eating gruel. You know, and you think like, yes. I want to be back, you know, with the with the sushi and the and the fine wine and the Yeah, that's such a good analogy, I think. Because I remember after the study having these moments of like clarity where everything like I would be outside and I could see the things down to the smallest detail because I think I was present for the first time and everything looked so crisp and clear and beautiful and solid and real and then it would disappear all over again and then I would be in the fog of not seeing anything not feeling anything and I remember almost like the despair of fearing that it was gone forever mm-hmm. and that I was never going to feel that way again. And I think that was the hard part is fearing that all the good things that happened and the good shifts that happened happened for a brief moment in time. And then everything was going to go back to how it was because I definitely was never present in my life. That's part of the reason why I have so little memories even of my kids growing up because I was just not there. It's hard to go back to that place after you've seen the light. Yeah.
curious, Hope, your opinion on this. Uh, my sense is from having been at the study site where I was and talking to some therapists at other sites that there's a big cohort of people, not just who are in the study, but you know, suffering chronic PTSD in general, who have parent-child, early, you know, early attachment kind of PTSD that is so deeply rooted. It's so, mm-hmm. if you will, kind of in the hard wiring, in the attachment wiring, that it's a whole different kind of PTSD than like going to war or yeah. being, you know, raped during teenage years or, you know, mm-hmm. having a traumatic loss that, that it seems like, again, and this is just me speaking, I'm not speaking for maps, but it seems like there's sort of a bifurcation of treatment results. There's people who don't have early childhood attachment, sort of parent-child PTSD, who actually, a number of them seem to be getting like home run improvement, right. cure, you know, cure, if you will, yeah. with uh, MDMA work. And then there's everybody else who has deeper attachment trauma, mm-hmm. and they're not getting cured. Often right. they're getting significant benefit, but they're leaving the study better but not well. They're leaving the study with improved scores, but they're not well. And as I've explained to some of those people uh, that have reached out to me through the podcast or a number of my patients who are doing their own underground work is that mm-hmm. um, if you have that kind of trauma, you're probably someone who's going to end up doing, you know, if when MDMA and other things like this are legalized, you're probably someone who's going to end up doing that on and off over a long period of time. Right. That MAPS, when they came up with the with the protocol, they had to come up with something that was workable, that was time-limited, that was not too expensive. And so they came up with the three medicine sessions and integration yeah. and prep over three and a half months. But that's not enough for a whole lot of people. So again, that's my long-winded way of saying, I think that maybe you're in a very substantial group of people who got benefit but didn't get the home run cure because of the kind of trauma you have. Yeah, I definitely agree with that because I actually met other participants during or after, I guess, my treatment was over um, at different events. And I remember very clearly there being talk that, you know, if you had a solid family life to start from, that you were going to do a lot better and that they were starting to find out that the people who had grown up in non-nurturing, you know, family environments will continue to struggle. And I've actually met both types of participants. And that's exactly what I saw. I have a, you know, a couple friends in the study. And one of them, he actually did really well post-study because he, he was, um, you know, in the military. And then I have another friend who has deep trauma from her childhood. And then she actually went underground and did several more treatments because, you know, like me, um, once she was done, she felt like there was so much more that she needed to work through and she didn't have any other choice. Mm-hmm. It seems like too, you know, I, I wasn't your therapist in the study, but hearing your description of what happened in, in your sessions is that you much like I think a number of people, the people that I worked with and other people that I talked to that went through the study, that what they learned in their MDMA sessions was that what they thought was their primary trauma was not. Like a lot of times yeah. people think, oh, it was the, the sexual assault or the war or mm-hmm. um, the terrible car wreck, but that so many people in the study with this treatment-resistant PTSD are finding out, no, it's deep attachment complex PTSD Mm -hmm. that, you know, again, in this metaphor that I use a lot on this podcast, that people as trees, that it's like a lot of the people who are coming to the MDMA study, not surprisingly, are trees with deeply damaged tap roots. And they're thinking that, oh, it's other other problem. Like, oh, I just, I'm a tree that falls over in the wind, or maybe I just need a little more water or sun, but they know they have this really deep deficit. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that happened with you. I mean, you, you obviously knew you had parent-child issues, but as you described... I actually did not know. Oh, you did not know? Okay. (laughs) No, I thought it was normal to be treated that way. I thought this was how it was with parents and their kids. I had no idea. I thought my family life was normal. And so I did not find out till way later that it was anything but. And I agree. I feel like 
if you had that solid base to start from and then you encounter a terrible trauma, I think maybe you have some tools to be able to overcome and get past it. But when you have nothing on you, it's almost like having no armor and no um, no tools at all. You're like this little naked, you know, baby in the jungle. And then something horrible happened and you're deeply wounded. And then there's nobody to help, you know, um, sew you back up. And I feel like that's what happens with people who grew up, you know, feeling worthless, like they didn't matter. You know, then something bad happens and it's almost all over at that point. I wonder if we might shift to talk a little bit about the cover story power trip mm-hmm. podcast. So uh, I listened to all of that. Uh, very interesting. I think it served some important roles in mm-hmm. terms of talking about um, one of the huge dangers, which I've talked about in this podcast and other folks have too, which is the terrible uh, sexual boundary violations and just some of the despicable despicable boundary stuff that's happening and has happened in psychedelic mm-hmm. work forever. So yeah. I celebrate them for doing that. But you know, when I was list first started listening to the cover story episodes, I kept thinking of you. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know, we were in the works, you know, working on this episode. And I thought, oh my gosh, I have to have hope talk about this because I thought you are an example of someone who wasn't cured, uh, has continued to struggle a lot in many ways post-study mm-hmm. and got benefit. And um, and I think you have more of a nuanced, non-black, white, more kind of gray, and I, I would argue more common experience of what happens mm-hmm. for the people yeah. both in the study and after the study. So I'm curious, yeah, what have been your thoughts and reactions as, as you've heard that podcast and, and some of the stories on that? I mean, the, the podcast is very relevant. Obviously, it's bringing to light things that have happened and continue to happen, especially in underground work. I've heard a lot of stories before that. And I've been, you know, cautioned if you ever, you know, want to do underground therapy, you have to really find a good fit and somebody who's going to be safe to work with. And I don't know that people can tell who's safe to work with or not. But I guess at the same time, you know, my experience with MAPS was very different in the sense that I, you know, my therapists knew sort of what, you know, what my trauma was like. And for us, consent was of the utmost importance. I mean, I I remember I did not lie down in the bed. I didn't put the shades on, the headphones on. Um, I wanted to sit up and be able to see and hear everything because um, it didn't feel safe for me to do that. And so there was no touch really in our sessions. And if there was going to be even a handhold, there would be the question, you know, would you like for me to hold your hand? And I always said no, because I didn't feel safe. Was that discussed touched. before the sessions? Um, yes, it was brought up. Touch was brought up. I remember it was, um, I'm pretty sure I signed paperwork saying that there would only be therapeutic touch, and I think they gave examples, and then only if consented by the participant. So it was made very, very clear that they were not going to touch you, you know, while you were deep in your treatment and not really aware of what was happening. And so for me, the experience was very different. I can see how terribly traumatizing it would be, especially for somebody like me, to be touched without consent. So those stories are very, very powerful and incredibly tragic because these people, you know, are doing what I tried to do, which is heal and trust again. And, you know, to have your trust violated you know, under the guise of being healed, 
I can't imagine how awful that would be. I think for me, I did listen to all the podcast episodes, and I felt like, unfortunately, it was almost like a, like they were wanting you to keep listening, and they were kind of trying to keep you like hanging on, and it was almost like, a, I don't know, it felt a little bit too sensational for me, and I felt like it lost some of the integrity that was owed to the people who were um, harmed during treatment. I felt like the stories deserved so much more respect and a much more gentle touch. And I almost feel like, unfortunately, their stories were being used. Um, that was my feeling uh, when I listened. And obviously, my experience was very different. I just felt so sad for them because mm -hmm. I felt like they deserved to be heard, but in a much more respectful way. Yeah. Yeah, I felt so sad for them and just disgusted for the people who crossed, you know, this, Yeah, you know, in Star Trek, the prime directive was don't mess with other planets, you know, their cultures. And as a therapist, right. the prime directive is don't do anything to harm the yeah. patient client ever. And mm -hmm. in the psychedelic space, it's just such a sensitive, charged space. And, um, we just have to be so careful. So I do appreciate that they brought up those, but I, I agree that it seemed it it seemed to get a little sensationalized, sensationalized, and then also just generalized, like um, because these things have happened. Thus, um, right. MDMA treatment and maps and the study and everything is terrible. And yet, again, one of the reasons I was excited to sit down with you, Hope, was again, to point out that it's way more complicated than that, mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. you know, it's been a really hard journey for you, both pre and post study. It's been a, but it's been a different journey. Yeah, and, very different. Right. And as you've said, it gave you a sense of what was possible, what could be for you now to over the last you know, months and mm -hmm. years to, to do the hard work of therapy to try to yeah. put that together. Yeah, it showed me what was possible. And I... You know, that's what made me very sad. You know, when they brought up, when the cover story episodes brought up maps, it was brought up as if, you know, that happened, yeah, in the maps context, but it was an isolated incident. And I felt like it was so heavy handed the way they brought it all up as if to make it sound like, you know, it was maps was this giant machine that was kind of chugging along and not really concerned with the work that it was doing, that made me very sad because, I mean, I know personally so many people who have been helped by the study and, you know, nobody wants to say cured or not cured, but if it actually made a positive difference in your life and made you give you a reason to keep going in a better way, you know, to, to negate all of that because of some very unfortunate events that happened, I think is a little bit tragic because it just brings down the entire organization as if it was one person, you know, doing this thing. Yeah. How would you summarize, and I think you touched on this a little bit before, but if you had to summarize how the study changed the course of your life. Again, we've heard it didn't make things all better by any means, but if you can imagine not having gone through it versus having gone through it. I'm not sure I would honestly be here talking if I hadn't gone through the study because my life was so hopeless and I was still in the same dynamics that I'd, you know, been in previous. And I was suffering so much, and I didn't think that I had a choice in changing some of the relationships that I had. I either would not be here, or I would be probably non-functional. I'd probably be heavily medicated and not, not living life.
We heal through relationship, and we are harmed through relationship. MDMA and other psychedelics have the potential to supercharge the therapy relationship, yet they also create a space where inexperienced or naive or malicious therapists can cause terrible harm. As I've highlighted many times in Back from the Abyss, therapy is very complicated work. It takes years to develop some degree of competence, and the therapist, whether working in this psychedelic space or not, needs to be constantly and relentlessly self-monitoring, asking, why did I do that? Why did I say that? How and when might I be causing harm? Because if we immerse ourselves in the messy work of healing, particularly with psychedelics, we need to fully own and honor that we are holding another's precious life and well-being in our hands.